I'm Danny Stover, and this is Today in TO, a podcast that takes a look at the biggest stories in the city and connects the dots on what's going on. We're just not totally sure when those dots will connect or how much it'll cost. On today's episode, Crosslink's the consortium that's been in charge of building Toronto's Eglinton Crosstown project for the past 10 plus years, is asking court permission to stop construction and are blaming Metrolinks for mismanaging the situation, to which Metrolink says... I know you are, but what am I? If you've ever asked, what's the parking situation before going anywhere via personal vehicle, you'll want to hear this conversation about parking policy and reform. I know it sounds so boring, but I found it fascinating, and it literally ties into almost every other issue we have in the city right now. Plus, you'll get the story behind a Toronto park that used to be a parking lot with a giant rock in the middle of it. And, you know, evidently it's a decent place to sit and watch people try to park their fancy cars, if you're into that sort of thing. All of that coming up on Today in TO. Imagine you're a kid. Your mom says you can use the sandbox to build a sandcastle, and you have a vision. So you employ your little sibling and a few of their friends to get to work building. And then for whatever reason, I mean, you are kids, you're not happy with the work they're doing. They're not happy with how you're running the show. And you're like, mom, and they're like, mom. And mom's like, oh my God, I have a million other things going on and nothing gets built and everyone is in a fight. So that's my terrible analogy where mom is the province, you are Metrolinks, and your little sib and their pals are Crosslinks. Now, the actual situation is way more dire, but I find juvenile examples help me understand things, and this is very juvenile, if I do say so myself. Now, construction on the Eglinton Crosstown LRT began in the summer of 2011. Adele's Rolling in the Deep was the top song of the year, if that puts things in perspective. In 2015, it was announced that Crosslinks Transit Solutions, CTS, signed a contract with Metrolinks and Infrastructure Ontario to complete the light rail transit line, a 19-kilometer system with 25 stations, seamless connections to existing transit lines, and a promise in writing to maintain the line once completed for 30 years. In this 2015 release announcing the partnership, it also states, and I quote, Crosslink's successful proposal will deliver Crosstown LRT by 2021, and the contract was valued at that time at approximately $9.1 billion, adjusted for inflation. So it's obviously 2023, still no completed line, not even a timeline for when it could be completed, thanks to more than 260 quality control issues. And we're now at $12.8 billion in costs. Is this all clear as mud? Let's try again. You've got the province. Then Metrolinx is the project owner. The TTC is a part of this, too, because they'll be operating the line once completed. And according to the OG contract, there should be seamless connections. Then Crosslinks Transit Solutions is this consortium of companies, including SNC-Lavalin, Ellis Dawn, Acon, and ACS Dragados. And they're in charge of the construction and maintenance. And that consortium has now filed a legal proceeding to the Superior Court of Justice to stop work on the LRT until Metrolinks 
makes the TTC follow the terms of the original agreement. Here's Global News, Queens Park Bureau Chief Colin DeMello. You know, Metrolinx blames Crosslinks, right? They say it's this consortium that really is the problem. They say that they're the ones who are behind the delays. They've been trying to work with them to do a couple of things. One, to create a more realistic timeline for when this project will be finalized. And two, to fix the deficiencies. We don't know to what extent, but we know there, there are 260, according to Metrolinks. And they say it's a safety issue. They say, you know, they're not going to allow, this is Metrolinks. Metrolinks says they're not going to allow TTC operators to start training on the Eglinton Crosstown until all the deficiencies are fixed because, you know, obviously they want to prevent any kind of derailment or any kind of injuries to, uh, to passengers or to um, operators. And so today, Metrolink says that they were informed last night that Crosslinks wants to litigate and wants to stop working with the TTC, which, if you think about it, so they're, they're building um, Eglinton LRT but they're not working with the entity that will operate it. So, you know, it, it, it leads you to kind of question the entire future of this line if, if Crosslinks isn't going to work with the TTC. And it also begs the question, how can Crosslinks essentially hold this entire rail line hostage? This feels like a game of hot potato. Metrolinks keeps saying that any delays in the project, any deficiencies that need to be fixed, all those costs are going to be borne by Crosslinks, which is why, according to Metrolinks, might be trying to take Metrolinks to court in order to maybe figure out those financials. Maybe they don't want to pay anymore. Maybe it's eating into, you know, whatever profit margin uh, they were expecting to make. And, and Metrolinks says this is all part of a delay tactic. This whole project has been a delay tactic. There are also people and business owners caught up in all of this, too. It's not just costing money for these companies and key stakeholders. Toronto residents who live along this nearly 20-kilometer construction zone have been impacted in irreversible ways. So there is largely going to be a lot more anger and just simply no answers because the people who hold the answers are crosslinks and Metrolinks doesn't seem to know how to get the answers out of them. If they can't get the answer out of crosslinks, uh, you know, good luck to us trying to get the answer out of Metrolink. At least we're all on the same page when it comes to how disappointed everyone is in this project. Good grief. Coming up, transit in Toronto is one thing, but if you use a vehicle to get around, the number one question you're probably asking yourself before you head out, what's the parking situation? You'll learn how we became so dependent on parking and how we can work to improve the experience without making everything about cars. That's next. How dependent are you on your vehicle? I mean assuming you have one. Because a big part of driving, whether it's in the city or otherwise, is parking. In fact, I'd be willing to bet that parking plays a role in your decision-making and planning process, and the same is true for city builders. And there was a time where Toronto was a sea of parking lots. But as we currently discuss issues like gridlock, congestion, bike lanes, infrastructure, potholes, carbon emissions, safe streets, and even housing affordability and targets— there's kind of this underlying thing to consider. What's the parking situation? 
Henry Graybar is a staff writer at Slate and the author of Paved Paradise, How Parking Explains the World. And I found this to be a really interesting look at parking infrastructure, something I actively participate in but rarely ever think about on a policy level. And I've certainly never thought about parking reform. So this may seem like a silly question, but what came first, the car or the parking spot? Well, over the last hundred years, we have created a cycle in which we built more parking and the more parking we build, the more everybody has to drive. And that's for two reasons. The first is that free parking, required parking at every location functions as a pretty big subsidy for owning a car, right? Like if you buy a house and every house has to come with the biggest room in the house is a garage and that's required by law, then you are effectively making a down payment on owning a car right off the bat. And if you don't own a car, uh, you're wasting a lot of money on on something that you're never going to use. Parking has encouraged vehicle ownership and use. And we see that in study after study, whether it's of homes or workplaces. But the other thing is that the more parking you create, the more difficult the urban environment becomes to navigate on foot, in a bus, on a bike, et cetera. I mean, you can see this for yourself. If you stand out on some suburban arterial road that's six lanes wide and every store is separated from the sidewalk by a giant parking lot, it's not a pleasant environment to walk around. And so that's the situation in which we find ourselves. But the flip side of that is that if you begin to create spaces and places where parking is slightly less of a priority. People respond by using the car less. They find it easier to get around without a car. And the easier they find it to get around without a car, the less parking you need. And so that is the alternative cycle that I think the parking reformers would like to unlock. You make it easier for people to get downtown on foot or by bike. You make it safe on the streets for them to do that. And maybe all of a sudden, a couple of those parking spots outside the restaurant can be turned into tables and chairs. So once people became reliant on cars parking policy came into play. We need lots of parking, but we can't just charge drivers for it directly because we soon realize they're not really willing to pay for it. And that was the situation that most North American cities faced in the 1950s as cars began to fill up the urban environment. And and they came up with what they thought was a clever solution. And this persists in almost every North American jurisdiction to this day, and that is to require a certain number of parking spaces with every single new or renovated building, whether it was a restaurant or an apartment building or a single family home or uh, an office. There's a little table in the city code that says this restaurant needs to come with one parking space for every 100 or 150 square feet or something like that. This past weekend, I didn't take the car out once. And I did grocery shopping, visited friends, went to the park, did some gardening, bought a vintage dress for an upcoming wedding. I even went to a restaurant in North York by bus. And this is not to brag, but to say that it felt amazing, not relying on my car and still being able to get things done and feeling empowered to do so. And I acknowledge it's a privilege to have a vehicle and to live in a community where I don't need to rely on it. Most people actually would like to not have to drive everywhere quite so often. That is the system we've built through a combination of law and subsidy and preference, but often it leaves people dependent on cars, not just free to drive, but condemned to drive at a certain point. You know, like many people cannot buy a gallon of milk on foot. Their children cannot get to school on foot. And so those are the kinds of changes that become possible when you begin to think differently about parking. It's not about saying, we don't want you to drive anymore. We don't want you to own a car. It's about saying, wouldn't it be nice if you could make a couple trips a week 
without having to get in the car, if that was safe, if that was convenient, if that was pleasant. And often achieving those goals means changing and reforming the way we think about parking. And so I guess what I'm saying is while people do uh, say that parking is one of the most important things when they when they think about driving, they think about their neighborhood. And many people say it's a good parking spot is the difference between a good day and a bad day. In spite of all that, we do acknowledge that we have higher priorities as a society, you know, <laughs> like getting everybody at home and reducing our carbon emissions and reducing the number of people who get hit and killed by cars and creating nice neighborhoods and beautiful architecture and housing people can afford. And all those things, it turns out, depend on better parking policy. This also plays into affordability and housing. Don Chup, who's the kind of father of the parking studies movement, likes to say that whatever the question, the answer is parking. There's this immovable object at, at the heart of the issue, and, and that is parking, right? And for affordable housing in particular, parking costs so much to build and takes up so much space that if you are trying to build a small affordable housing project on a small lot in a Canadian suburb, requiring a certain amount of parking turns into a massive imposition, even if it seems like a, a rule that, that was founded with good intentions. In the city of Toronto, the Parking Authority manages approximately 19,000 on-street parking spaces and 22,000 off-street spaces at about 250 facilities. In the U.S., for example, surface parking lots cover more than 5% of all urban land. In Los Angeles, parking occupies more land than housing. It's not just a space thing, but it's also a climate thing. From 1990 to 2019, emissions from the transportation sector increased by 54 percent. And in 2019, 80 percent of Toronto's total emissions were from personal vehicles. It's also a cost thing. Parking lots are not cheap. There actually is enough parking. It's just that often you don't know where it is. It's mismanaged and improperly priced, and it's often not shared. And so it's privatized between different uses, which means that while when you add it up, it looks like a lot of parking, perhaps when, when you show up looking for a space, it's not all accessible to you. So reforming some of those policies would be a good first step in, you know, at the very least, using more efficiently the parking that we have rather than spending a bunch of money creating new parking spots. And by the way, it is a bunch of money. I mean, a structured parking garage costs $40,000 a stall minimum. And so the answer to the question, well, why don't we just build more parking is it's extremely expensive. So how can we begin to reform parking in a city like Toronto? One of the most obvious things we can do is think about sharing parking, places where you already have an enormous amount of parking. For example, a downtown with a bunch of offices. There's a lot of parking garages that have been built to accommodate those office workers. But especially now, when fewer office workers are going to the office, you have a large vacant stock of parking. And then the question is, OK, well, could we use that more efficiently? Maybe those downtowns are a good place to build lots of housing that doesn't come with parking because they already have this pretty underused parking supply that even on the best days is only really used from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. So that's an example of how by thinking about sharing what we've already got, we can potentially unlock a lot of opportunities, even with the existing parking stock. Once again, that was Henry Graybar, the author of Paved Paradise, How Parking Explains the World. And now, if you think parking lots are as useless as that giant lemon-shaped rock, wait a minute. There's an actual park behind that rock. Or should I say, granite outcrop? Producer Glenn Bergonier will fill you in on one lot that was transformed into an award-winning park. 
And yeah, if you live in Toronto, I don't need to remind you that parking is beyond a problem. But every now and then, when we see a parking lot get taken out, occasionally, a beautiful installment gets erected in its place. Such as the case for the village at Yorkville Park. Way back in the 1950s, a block of old Victorian-era homes were demolished on Cumberland Street to make way for the Blur subway line which was in its early stages of construction. Once the houses were demolished, there was this massive vacant lot that no one wanted to do anything with and did nothing for the little bohemian area. So the city erected a one-acre parking lot in its place, one that remained until the 1990s. One individual in particular helped to organize a movement that would see this parking lot, which was nothing special to look at, turn into something that would not only add aesthetics to the area, but also benefit all Torontonians. And that man was Selwyn Wilbur Sugarman, also known as Bud, who believed that Yorkville Village was losing its alluring characteristics. So Bud Sugarman, along with the Bloor Yorkville BIA and the City of Toronto Architects, designed a radical new idea to build a new urban green space that would be more than just a patch of grass and some trees and a couple of benches. And so, this urban green space was developed on the one acre lot that was formerly a parking lot to create what is now known as the village of Yorkville Park. The park features a 650 ton rock that's been transplanted from the Canadian Shield, 10 unique zones that range from an urban forest to marshy wetlands that are crisscrossed with boardwalks, and even a steel water curtain display that naturally becomes a sculpture of icicles during the winter months. We can always use more places to park in this increasingly congested city, but at least in my humble opinion, we can almost always use more nature, art, and aesthetically beautiful public parks, like the one we have in the village of Yorkville. That's a huge rock. Of course, this podcast is brought to you by 640 Toronto and features audio from shows across the Chorus Entertainment Network. My name's Danny Stover. Today in TO is produced by me, Glenn Bergonier, David Spargala, and big thanks to Bilal Masri for editing today's episode. Amanda Capito, Jason Chapman, and Chris Dunner are advisors to the show. We'll be back with a brand new episode next week. We'll dip back into this clown car of a mayoral race and maybe we'll make some friends along the way. In the meantime, I invite you to share this podcast with someone you love or someone you hate. I'm easy. We'll talk soon. Bye. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.